0: I don't wear a mask for the same reason I don't wear underwear. Things gotta breathe. (laughs) Since I've been on a roll talking about controversial things that shouldn't be controversial, we're going to talk about mask wearing today. I'm not going to get into the efficacy of mask wearing. I think there is plenty of literature out there for people to read about how it works. I think what's more interesting about this whole thing is what drives these people to think this way. And why this is a uniquely American the problem, problem the even when the entire world the is going is through the, the same pandemic. you want to be known for? You want to be responsible for your fear mongering and misinformation fed to your citizens? The problem with humanity today is ignorance, arrogance, and apathy. Before we get started, some quick background. I graduated UT Austin with a bachelor's in public health. And for the past six months, I've been an infection control and manager. So basically, my job is just a lot of COVID-19 stuff. If you think you're sick of talking about this pandemic, trust me, I understand. That being said, we will continue to talk about this pandemic. I just wanted to give you a quick background of what I'm drawing from. A lot of the arguments by people who don't want to wear masks are really from things that patients have directly said to me. So that brings me to my first point. A lot of what these arguments boil down to is this defiance against viruses. Wow. Viruses. <laughs> that is so Texan. Okay. It's this defiance against these viruses as if they are beings with a capability to have an intention. A lot of the rhetoric surrounding this rejection of complying with public health recommendations kind of sounds a lot like the way we talk about terrorists, like we don't negotiate with terrorists sounds weirdly similar to don't cower down to viruses, which fundamentally it makes no sense because if Viruses themselves actually aren't even considered living beings. They're nowhere near having the ability to have emotions or intentions to attack us. You know what, let's back up a little bit. I want to give you a SparkNotes version of how viruses work so this makes a lot more sense. Okay, so I'm sure you've heard of this analogy before, but genetic material, you can think of it as a recipe book. So all of our genetic material is a code for all of our traits. So our eyes and our hair and our skin, just everything about us is coded in that material. So in our cells, we have this genetic material. And alongside that, we have machinery that makes the things that we need to make us who we are. All the cells of our body are all doing their part in making whatever the code says. But the interesting thing is, is viruses only have the genetic material. They don't have the machinery that goes along with the genetic material, which is one of the reasons why they're not considered living things, because they're just a piece of DNA or RNA in a envelope. So they can't reproduce because they would need the machinery to create parts of their offspring, right? So what viruses do is that they grab a hold of our cells and inject their genetic material into our cells. And then that genetic material enters your cell and hijacks your machinery. After it creates enough of its offspring, the cell actually ends up exploding. And all of these newly made viruses are floating around your bloodstream. And each of those viruses cling on to the next cell and so on and so forth. Think of it like a a pyramid scheme. So you know how they say, like, if you go and tell three people and those three people tell those three people, just like that. So a handful of viruses can use your own cells to create thousands and hundreds of thousands of themselves. To make it really simple, they use the human body as like a surrogate for their offspring, if you can call them that. And as a byproduct of that entire process, it becomes fatal to humans or the host that it's using. So I'm editing this podcast right now, and I had to insert this because honestly, I feel like Bill Nye the Science Guy throughout this entire podcast, so it feels pretty good. And I wish I could insert the theme song here, but I honestly don't know if the copyrights will allow me to, so I'm going to leave the next five seconds of silence so you can sing it out loud for yourself, okay? And go. Okay, and we're back. (laughs) So if you see it from a human-centric point of view, we are seeing ourselves as being like attacked by this population of viruses and they're out to get us. But really what they're doing is what every single organism is doing on this planet, which is surviving and producing more offspring. But it just so happens that the way they need to do it is one that can be fatal to us. If you look at it from just a science perspective, like we are part of an ecosystem, This is actually just very normal for how organisms interact with each other and we're just one of the many organisms that exist. So to be able to make it feel as if like the world revolves around humans and the only reason why things are happening is to either to hurt us or to benefit us is a very anthropogenic view of how the ecosystem works and you clearly don't understand the science behind what's happening so to ascribe human concepts like terrorism onto viruses that don't have any like not even the closest capability says more about your own view of how the world works as opposed to you coming off as some kind of hero for trying to beat this virus So that kind of brings me to my second point, that there seems to be a lack of humility as to where we stand in the larger spectrum of things. I think this idea of being defiant towards a virus is a product of a lot of privilege. It's because of advancements in public health and infrastructure that these people have been insulated from a lot of infectious disease and the environment in general, which people in developing countries just don't have. To give you some public health context to that, there's something called the epidemiological transition. It's a concept that delineates the progression of public health in countries. So the epidemiological transition is a transition of having infectious disease be a huge cause of death and burden for a population to having chronic disease be the major cause of death for a country. And what that means is that the infectious diseases that happen in developing countries due to lack of clean water and infrastructure in general will allow for more people to die from infectious disease. But as a country develops more and is able to have proper sanitation systems and provide clean water to people, the number of people that die from infectious disease dramatically drops. And because of the amount of infrastructure they have, they'll start to eat more caloric dense foods because the amount of infrastructure they have now. So your McDonald's and your fast foods. So the population is now suffering from more chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease. But now they're experiencing a different kind of burden. So that transition from the infectious disease to the chronic disease burden is called the epidemiological transition. Countries fall on different sides of that. Developed countries obviously will fall into the more chronic disease burden, and developing countries will be in the phase before that in the infectious disease burden. So in the U.S., only one of the top 10 causes of death is due to infectious disease. And in contrast, low-income countries, five out of their top 10 causes of death are due to infectious diseases, which include Respiratory disease, diarrheal disease, HIV, malaria, TB. So things that are preventable with proper infrastructure make up 250 deaths per 100,000 people compared to the infectious disease deaths that happen in America, which is only 40 per 100,000. So the lower income and middle income countries usually fall within the infectious disease phase. So going back to the anti-maskers, they have a robust sanitation system. They have safe drinking water. Hygiene supplies. So they are not getting infectious diseases that spread through contaminated water. 2.4 billion people, according to the CDC, don't have a proper water system, which is something that these people have never experienced. Contaminated water can carry things like typhoid, cholera, and polio. In the U.S., the highest state mortality, I think this was, God, I don't want to throw the wrong state under the bus here, but it's, no, you know what? I'm not going to guess. There's um, the highest state mortality is four children per 100,000, while in low-income countries, it's 60 children per 100,000 that die due to diarrheal deaths, according to the WHO. So that's 15 times more of our highest state's mortality, which only shows how advanced comparatively the U.S. is as far as sanitation systems. And that's not to say that amongst the U.S. population itself, there are not populations that don't have clean water. I mean, look at Flint, Michigan, but for the most part, this country is significantly better off as far as infectious disease compared to developing countries the same people who are anti-maskers are also enjoying the privilege of having herd immunity from mass vaccinations so every day they live their lives they're not thinking about measles they're not thinking about typhoid and let's say you still get sick science has created antibiotics for you and antivirals amongst people in developing countries there's a respect and humility about being a part of the ecosystem When death from infectious disease is only a degree away from you, you're not going to go out and try to pick a fight with COVID-19. When you've never experienced that, you're ignorant to the amount of money and privilege and effort that went into insulating you from all of these things. Yeah, you're going to go out there and act like you can take on a lethal virus. But I have a feeling that learning about the hardships of other countries is not going to speak to Americans. So let's look at American history and learn about how infectious disease used to be such a huge burden for this country and how we got out of it. The U.S. didn't, from day one, have the infrastructure they have now, and they never had infectious disease and were always burdened by chronic disease. To give you a timeline about how U.S. made that transition from infectious disease to chronic disease, between the 1830s to 80s, there was high infection. There was no water sanitation, poor nutrition and hygiene. So diseases that existed was malaria. In the Midwest, the U.S. experienced three cholera epidemics and there's some records of people talking about how sewers were poured into drinking water so people were literally drinking their own shit and i guess everybody else's shit every single day and getting typhoid so it was a pretty bad time and then in the late 1800s to early 1900s you see this huge shift vaccinations become a thing they were quarantining measles cases which measles is an extremely infectious disease using antibiotics chlorinating water so a lot of public health advancements happened between the late 1800s and the early 1900s and then from the 1930s till now you see even more scientific enhancements after discovering a vaccination 1949 it was the last outbreak of smallpox and In the 1940s, there were still polio outbreaks, but in 1955, a vaccination comes. It goes from 15,000 paralysis cases per year in the 1950s to less than 10 by the 1970s. So now we're firmly in the chronic disease phase of the epidemiological transition. That's a rough timeline of how that worked, but Tick put it in the individual level. From the 1790s to 1880s, so this is during the drinking shit time, a 10 year old white boy's life expectancy was around 48 years old. And now that is 77 years old. I mean, these kids were dying before a midlife crisis. A midlife crisis was invented very recently because people weren't even living past 50. So that goes to show how much improvement that's been made in this country and how much we take for granted and look over. I think the actual takeaway from this podcast is to uh, only talk about the things you know about. I think people talk a lot about how in America we make all kids feel like they won and we're giving out too many participation prizes and making everyone feel good when there's really winners and losers in life. And all these older people are like bashing on these little kids who are just freaking like throwing a ball around. But we don't talk about how adults actually do that. Every single day where they talk about things they know nothing about with more detrimental effects when we're talking about how people who know nothing about source control and public health and pandemics are offering up their opinion because they feel like their opinion matters just as much as Dr. Fauci's. There's a huge difference between an informed opinion and just an opinion and an even bigger difference between an opinion and a fact. What's funny is that I'm called a liberal snowflake all the time, and honestly, I'll own up to that. I truly, truly am. But I cannot think of one thing in this world that is more snowflakey than feeling that all opinions were made equal. It's not, hun. It just is not. Moral of the story here is let's all stay in our lane, leave it to the experts, and wear a goddamn mask. This is The World We Inherit, and my name is Anita Kirti.